Oh my god, season one was starting to get to me, I gotta be honest. Just blech episode after blech episode. We had a lamentation in there. Whew. It's good to see some honest-to-goodness old track here. I want to talk about something really... I know this is a weird time to talk about this, but this just came up like 20 minutes ago while I was watching the episode. Someone was asking me uh, in the comments, why do I keep calling, you know, old Trek modern Trek? I just want to explain my terminology. To me, old Trek is TOS. And if you count it, the movies. But but really, no, it, it's TOS. And I'd probably put the dividing line at uh, probably the motion picture if I had to. But you could also put it before the movies entirely. TOS, just, that's it. You could include TAS. Let's stop getting adding asterisks to this. Modern Trek is what I call TNG, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise. The the modern era, as it is usually referred to as. Uh, even, even historically, the 90s, the 80s. And then we have the new stuff, which, as I've said several thousand times, I haven't actually seen. Now, I was it's funny because this came up because they were saying, you know, why are you calling New Trek Modern Trek? I have seen a lot of people use that term, New Trek, one word, New Trek. And that apparently refers to the what, what I also hear as the Kurtzman stuff, a.k.a. Star, uh, Discovery, Picard, and Lower Decks. And I guess uh, Brave New World, or whatever it's called? No, Strange New World? The Pike Show, which I don't even think is actually officially confirmed as of me saying this. But last I checked, they're still going to make it. <sighs> I just wanted to clarify that really quick. Anyways, it's good to see some good old Trek. <clears throat> um, what's i I, I got to mention something, though. I'm checking my notes, and I'm like, I, what I've been doing as I go is just for fun seeing if there's any episodes in which... Uh, the production order and the release order actually line up. And I noticed this was episode, I think, 23, something like that, which it's also episode 23 and release. Oh, my God, we did it! We had a comment. No. No. No, see, what this actually is, is this is the 22nd episode in production order. Or, excuse me, 24th, sorry, the other direction. Because they actually made Space Seed before this. It wasn't until much more recently that we actually found out, and, and thanks to stills and other information that have been historically locked now, that Space Seed was actually filmed prior to working on A Taste of Armageddon. You might be like, well, how would you make a mistake like that? Well, the production orders were never changed. Each episode gets a production number, and it gets stamped onto it, and that's part of keeping, keeping track of everything. It's actually one of the biggest reasons why I've been using production order throughout the majority of my Star Trek stuff in general. It's a very efficient and quick way of just keeping track because it's a, it's an identifying code for each episode, right? Regardless of all other factors. But in this case, they didn't swap it, even though it should have been swapped. So we still have yet to actually link up with production order and release order. I'm still doing this episode next because, well, because production order number, like I just mentioned, and frankly, I don't feel like completely redoing my schedule. I guess it wouldn't be that hard, but you know what? I don't care that much. <laughs> I don't. We're going to talk about this episode first. So, this is a good time to mention. So, let's see. Uh, Robert Hammer uh, put, put, put together the idea for this episode based on Vietnam. Vietnam War. And the press releases that were coming out. Public news about how many casualties were happening over there. Fun, fun stuff. That was the impetus. Then Gene Kuhn took over and rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. This is actually why this was made after Space Seed. Because unlike, say, Shore Leave, where they were rewriting it on the fly because they were desperately trying to get anything done, they had gotten a little bit more caught up by this point. 
and they had the availability to rewrite a script until they felt the script was done. This is, of course, still contributing to that massive workload I mentioned that Kuhn was going through at this point in time, which eventually leads to him leaving the show. Just overwork, you know, stress. Nevertheless, uh, he did an absolutely marvelous job. While there are logical loopholes in this episode and some flaws that it has, the dialogue pops, and you could tell the quality of a script that had nine rewrites instead of zero. <sighs> Let's see. So we show up, and the first thing we see is... Ambassador... <laughs> Ambassador Fox. Ladies and gentlemen, the obstinate bureaucrat. That's two so far, I think. I think we're up to two? Something like that. It's just funny, we're still in season one of TOS and we've already seen two of these suckers. You ever wonder why I associate this concept, this archetype, so much with Star Trek? It's because of TOS. It, granted, they still used this in the other Star Treks, but God, they used this like crazy in TOS. Probably because this was the 60s and anti-authoritarianism... Anti-authoritarianism? It sounds wrong. Anti-authority was a pretty predominant theme in a lot of writers' works. Remember, we're, we're pulling scripts from tons of people from all over the place here, so... Anywho, <clears throat> so he shows up and he's evil. He's also a representative of, wait for it, the United Federation of Planets. Now, we've actually already established the Federation, but that right there is the first, we've got actually another first later on, but that is the first time we have established the UFP. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it! We finally have the Federation. It just took until almost the end of Season 1. It is so fascinating seeing how late some of this stuff develops. Anywho, so he shows up, and he's like, we're going to establish diplomatic connections with these people, whether they want it or not, because we have lots of death in this area. If only we had a friendly port. Okay, there's a huge logic gap there, but I'm just going to skip over that, because this leads to a lot of interesting implications and, and a lot of political discussion that can happen. At what point does a foreign power no longer have the right to refuse contact? Because that's what happens. They reach out, and the, the people say, no. Go away. We refuse the right to interact with you. It is Mr. An obstinate Bureaucrat who then ignores their right to refusal and just says, no, we're going through anyway. Huh. How diplomatic of you, sir. Yeah. Um, this also leads to an interesting Prime Directive question. Now, this episode unintentionally is also a prime directive episode because we massively interfere with the affairs of a of an alien species and while they are pre-warp they are definitely post-industrial these people have in many cases in many ways modern tech the biggest thing is while they have space flight they are system locked they, they don't have ftl basically um, so everything they can do is just within their own system okay so that's, that's actually kind of a cool idea, if I'm being honest. And the nature of how their society has developed and how they lose millions of people every year probably necessitates the fact that their society has stagnated in several ways. However, this is not the same case as it was back in uh, Return of the Archons. Return of the Archons was true stagnation, machine-like precision that has lasted for millennia. We need to get involved and fix that, right? This, this is trickier. This is much more nuanced and much more difficult. And so I posit to you right at the beginning, should they intervene here? This is a lot more gray of a scenario, a lot bigger of a dilemma than we saw back in Return of the Archons, and honestly, than most of the Prime Directive episodes we'll see in the future, even in other shows. What would you do? Either way, 
this leads to a couple of little lack of scale things. They've been at war for 500 years. And they've also had space flight for centuries. That's, that's neat. I guess if we want to define it, we've had space flight, space flight, I can talk, for what? Um, 80 years? No, that's wrong. 60 years. 60 years right now. Right? That counts for something, right? Um, they go down. We meet, we meet Mia 3, who is Trelane's mother, who's just slumming it, I guess. I'm not sure what else she's doing here. And we also meet Anon 7. I have two things to say about this. First of all, I get the really strong impression that the fact that they have numbers in their names just kind of adds to that whole stagnant culture thing I mentioned earlier. That the, the, the casualties of the war are so great that they don't really bother naming everyone a unique name. They just kind of say, okay, now you're an on three, now you're an on five, etc., etc. Or it could be a cultural thing. It could be a way to try and distinguish them as a separate species, having the numbers in the name rather than, you know, a, a surname. Not a, not a terrible idea, actually. And it kind of makes me wonder if we could use, like, numbers as a clan name. Well, think about it. It's nice and efficient. What's your name? I am a lore runner seven. That doesn't mean I'm the seventh lore runner. It means I'm of the clan seven. All of those who identify as sevens. That's just that's just a kind of a cool idea. But anyways, I'm just kibitzing at this point. <clears throat> Kirk makes formal first contact and diplomatic interaction with the head of state of a foreign power. Huh. If only he was acting as an official of the state. Now this is doubly funny because Ambassador Obstinate Bureaucrat up on the ship is acting as an officiate of the state. Now he's a he's a diplomat. But it's just interesting to see how this episode kind of handles that little niggle. So the key, the key point of the episode is established. They've been a simulated war. Um, it's, it's the nature of it. They run computers. These computers are connected through a WAN, which is an interstellar WAN, so it's a hell of a distance, but it still qualifies. And they calculate attacks, and they say, okay, well, this is what's happening here, and this is what's happening here. You have just taken this many casualties, so you now have to go kill a spider that's on your wall. Eh, you know what? That's actually a little one. I think I'll let it live. You get to live, buddy. I'm in the middle of recording. If you stay there for like 20 minutes, you're super dead, though. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. Killing people. That's, that's the best thing, right? All simulated. Okay. I'm kind of with it. I, I have more to say about this topic, so let's just move on. They do have a very minor thing where they mention it's the same as 50 years ago. Earlier in the episode, they mentioned that the USS Valiant... Oh, God, it's moving, which is just distracting. They mentioned this thing about the USS Valiant and how it disappeared with, with, with no all contact lost 50 years ago. Why do they immediately attack any ships in orbit? That's, that's apparently a, a high-priority target. Anybody who's played StarCraft II can tell you about that. Units uh, have... Every unit in the game has a priority number attached to it. I don't know what they actually call it. And if you just have a unit standing here... It will auto-attack whatever's the highest number first, and then it'll go down the list until it's dead or they're dead and there's nothing else to shoot. So I'm guessing starships are super high priority or something? I guess I could see that now that I think about it. I wonder if they even have space flight in the strictest sense anymore, if that's true. You know, trying to restrict uh, transportation, trade, that kind of a thing. It's interesting to think about. There's actually a lot to think about in this episode. One of the next points is, of course, they talk about how they attack. They beam bombs directly into position. I remind you, this is from another planet. 
So it looks like Abram's super transporter transported its way back into the past, into this episode, into these people's things. I'm not sure how exactly they managed that, but whatever. It takes the crew quite a while to figure out what the hell's going on. Once they do, they're just like, okay. This then leads to some silly nonsense. The people on the planet actually think that they can hold, what, like eight people hostage? Hang on, it says security guy, other dude, yeoman, what's-her-face, who's totally not Rand, Spock. So that's five, unless I missed one. <laughs> I, I don't pay attention to red shirts, they all look the same to me. But each of, the, each of these people, they think they're going to hold them hostage and say, all right, we're going to hold you hostage until the rest of your 400 and... 23, 24 with the ambassador. 25, excuse me, with the ambassador's aid. 425 people are willing to beam down and die. Oh, you're going you're gonna to be okay. Don't worry. We'll save your ship. We don't need to destroy your ship. What? Now, normally I'd complain about bad writing here, but actually, no. This is fully in character and fully the point. They are so massively disconnected with reality that they actually think that's totally cool. Why wouldn't it be? If it was one of them, the Emenians, or however they pronounce, they pronounce it weird, Emenians, um, something like that. Anyways, they would t they would go along with that. Oh, shucks. Well, at least leave the ship intact, okay? And they'd be like, okay, yeah, no problem. We'll make sure your ship is intact. Other people will be able to take and get out of here later. Cool. Uh, strangely enough, the Enterprise crew do not go along with this. This then leads to Scotty being in command. By the way, this is the first Scotty episode. If you've been paying attention, and this is a very big trend of Season 1, most of the secondary cast members get nothing to do. They're there on the screen, they get paid for showing up for the day, and they get to say a couple of lines, and that is it. This, As I mentioned before, Nichelle Nichols was really pissed about this, and she is not the only one. But supposedly that changes in the future. We'll see. I'm not there yet. But either way, because of that, Scotty has had a few lines... And he's had a few relevance, and he's, ha he's been the guy who tells you, okay, this is how we're going to fix the ship, or this is what's not fixed yet. But this is the first time Scotty's actually had scenes to himself. And I love the fact that the first Scotty scenes are him showing tremendous competence at being a commander. He hears Kirk say, beam down all the people, which once again is showing just how disconnected with reality they are, because Kirk would never give that order. That makes Scotty suspicious. Scotty checks the voice, and... It's a fake, so nope. Thank you, Scotty, for being awesome. Next up, we have Spock using his the psychic power of Vulcanians. I'm going to keep track at the first time they stop. I, I think it's actually another episode after this, and then they'll finally stop saying Vulcanian. <laughs> it's just, I mean, think, how long did it take for them to start calling them Klingons, for example? Because I know they have that issue, too, the, and Kling... You know, instead of Kronos. Anyways. <clears throat> so, Spock uses his psychic power through the thing to get out. Okay, cool. And they decide to go ahead and disintegrate the sucker. There's a really great scene here I want to talk about. There's a lot of good little scenes I'm going to talk about. And by a lot, I mean like two. But they're good, so shut up. <laughs> There's this bit where a guard is comforting a woman. And it's really distant. It's in the background. Um, you can see him being like, it's, it's okay. Okay, and there's just this little moment. She just kind of nods, and she goes into the, t the disintegrator and dies. And then the guard who was comforting her walks into the disintegrator and dies. More than, honestly, I'd say most of the rest of the episode, that tiny little tidbit with nameless characters played by extras gets across a wonderful 
it gets across the tone of exactly what this, well, I was going to call it a cold war. Uh, let's call this a calculated war is actually like, and what it actually feels like at a human level, or at a personal level. It's good stuff, and I, I enjoy that. Then, Spock <laughs> casually tricks the guard, destroys the disintegrator, and it goes back up to the ship, and they can't find the captain because they can't scan for human... I'm going to stop making fun of it. Let's move on, let's move on. This then leads to them attacking. Um, the, the, the planet decides to attack the ship. Now, I like this part. Usually, in a situation like this, the threat of the weak, the Aminians or whatever, they're the bad guys, and they're also technologically superior to our crew. The reasons for this are, A, it's simpler to write them as simply villains rather than trying to add any nuance, and B, because of the fact that it's an easy way to test the crew. You remember I brought up that whole topic back in Tomorrow's Yesterday. I mentioned the whole idea of how to challenge your party, in this case the crew of the Enterprise, when they have so much tech at their disposal. The easy way to do that is to just make everyone stronger with them. This is one of the reasons why I hate that idea of the threat of the weak that's stronger than the Enterprise. Because, well, first of all, because it's cheap, but second of all, because it's stupid. If every other race they encounter is somehow stronger than a galaxy-class doom ship, then there's just a lot of logical holes in the setting building at that point. But here, they're not stronger. Their only advantage is the subterfuge and the fact that they have hostages. And both of those advantages are torpedoed almost immediately. Thus, the crew are actually the ones in the superior position. And yet, despite this fact, it still works. The episode still functions and has good drama and good dilemma. Because the threat, the dilemma, the challenge to overcome is not saving the ship. That's easy. To be perfectly blunt, they could have managed that at about the halfway point of the episode. But Kirk is playing for bigger game here. And so because there's a new thing other than just live through the episode, all of a sudden, the challenge is still there. You see the brilliance of this. This is one of the reasons I do put a lot of credit to Mr. Kuhn and his writing talents. It is a damn shame he got overworked to crap. This is just a Star Trek trend. Look up how, as I've been covering Enterprise, you've probably heard me rant about how many episodes Braga writes in a row. I think the, the record is like 14 episodes in a row that are written by Braga. Same problem. And Braga had the same reaction to that, just being just... Oh. But nevertheless, both men are talented writers. And when they get to shine, in my opinion, it really shines, like in this episode. Forgive me for gushing, I really like this one. In fact, right now, I actually have my list up over here. I'm going to put this up at the good ones. Uh, let's put it here. There we go. Taste of Armageddon. This is a good damn episode. So, <clears throat> where was I? Scott, uh, right, right, right. So they, they attack the ship. Doesn't do anything. Can't get rid of the screens. Now, I want to point this out. Screens, it wasn't until the TNG era that shields would be demonstrated as they tend to be demonstrated from that point onward. Something that would actually go back even into Enterprise's era. Screens are kind of vaguely described, but for all intents and purposes, they are reinforcement shields. It's not an energy bubble that just stuff bounces off of it. It's more like something that is actually running through and on the outer armor in order to reinforce it. Kind of like polarized hull, except something that actually makes a freaking degree of sense. So, hull plating's offline! No! 
This is actually true even into the movies, if you pay attention. Uh, Star Trek II and Star Trek VI both being excellent examples of this exact concept. Either way, I'm pointing all that up but because they, they're still shields, even though they're using a different word for it. They are still shields. Those shields are enough to prevent the disruptor weapons, which apparently do sonic damage in space. Let's not get into that. <laughs> let's, just, let's just walk over that one. But here's the really interesting part. We have So Fox beams down and is an obstinate bureaucrat. By the way, he's an obstinate bureaucrat the whole freaking episode, the whole time. Up until a certain point. Hear me out, I'm getting there. And he demands that Scotty lower the shield screens as a show of good faith. Scotty refuses because he has a brain, and he literally saves the ship and everyone as a consequence of doing so. Yes, Scotty's action at refusing an, a direct order from someone who had authority on the mission is literally what saves millions of lives, including the crew of the Enterprise. Good freaking job, Scotty. The ambassador's really upset about this. He's also snarky and, and aggravating because he's the obstinate bureaucrat. Have you, if you've been paying attention... Who's the bad guy? Anon Seven? Or Ambassador Fox? No, really. Think about it. In the construction of the narrative, Anon Seven is a desperate and lost man. In multiple scenes, he's like, oh god, I don't know what to do. What do I do? Someone please tell me what to do. He is desperate to try and fix and resolve this. You'll notice, by the way, there's a ticking clock. They mention it twice, and then it actually comes up. There's a ticking clock in the background. They have 24 hours. They mentioned this right in the beginning. They have 24 hours to have everyone lined up so that they meet their quota, so that they show that they have taken the losses and they are not in violation of the treaty. And you'll notice he gets more and more panicked and fearful throughout the episode and more desperate to try and resolve this, to the point where his strategies actually get worse as the episode goes on. This is brilliant. He is portrayed in an almost universally sympathetic light, even though he's the guy trying to kill the crew of the Enterprise. By contrast, Mr. Fox is portrayed as a jackass who's a holier-than-thou asshole who is constantly putting the crew in danger, including by initiating the entire events of the episode. And it's raining again. Ugh. Now, I bring all this up because this is awesome. And it helps to nuance out an ensemble. It helps that the actor, who unfortunately hasn't done any other track, but he, he's a good actor. He was actually in the running for playing... Oh, I can't think of his name. Another character. They, they brought him back for this. Anyways, he's, he does a really good job. He nails not only the gravity of the role, but he also manages to get across the severity of someone who is so utterly lost because he's so disconnected from reality. When he sees things changing in front of his face, he just barely knows how to deal with it. By the way, as a side note, it makes perfect sense that a people who've never had real war in five centuries would almost universally lose to the crew of the Enterprise. Just point that out, too. So Fox decides to beam down. Hold up. Scotty didn't lower the shields. I told you there was one other first in this episode. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the first time they ignore the can't-beam-through-shields rule. Season 1. <laughs> Season 1 of TOS. We've established you can't beam through the shields, and we violated it. Love you, Trek. So, Kirk threatens the whole planet, and with real war. Loses two, two guards, which is stupid. And there's this great bit. There's a lot of good dialogue. Spock says, do not allow that woman to self-immolate. This is a serious situation. Sit on her if you have to. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh... 
And then Kirk orders General Order 24. Something that only comes up one other time in all of Star Trek. It's the equivalent of Base Delta Zero, which well, just occurred to me, some of you might not know what that is either. It's, it's kill everything. It's a planet cracker. Not, not cracker, that's the wrong term, because that's more like the Death Star. The point is, bombard the planet until there's nothing left walking. That's, that's what that means. Destroy. Destroy. So, <clears throat> Dalek Order is ordered. And, well, this is really refreshing. Now, I want to stress something, because I was writing in my notes, and I was like, oh my god, I look like a horribly evil person, and I swear I'm not. I'm not evil, guys. you got to believe me. I'll kill you if you don't believe me. One of the things I've complained about so much in the TNG and DS9 era, and arguably Voyager, and Enterprise, all of modern Trek has this problem where the Federation's approach to diplomacy is to be a doormat. To say, yes, please, step all over me. Even in TOS, this has been a thing periodically. Remember Balance of Terror? The loss of your ship and all those stations is acceptable to prevent war. Think about that. What Kirk does here is, ironically, diplomacy. Now, it is risky. This is why I have to, uh, to, to amend this and correct myself. What he does is a huge risk. And the only thing that irritates me is Spock points out the risk and Kirk ignores it, denies it repeatedly. No, no, it was totally a safe bet. No, it wasn't. What Kirk does is very risky. He basically forces two powers who are at war to re-escalate and reheat up that war. However, he also offers his, his position and services in order to try and make it better, thanks to both the Enterprise's position, the connections between the two, shutting down the computer, and, of course, most importantly, Fox, Ambassador Fox. By the way, did you catch that the moment Ambassador Fox beams down and is held prisoner, he immediately stops being the obstinate bureaucrat. Literally, the actor starts acting as if he's playing a different character and just come, is, is suddenly much more uh, helpful and informative and worthwhile and actually diplomatic as opposed to you know being a jackass, which he was before. It's just interesting to see that shift. Kirk pushes him up against a wall and says, Look, this is why I say Kirk was, was aiming for bigger game. He was trying to stop the war. He was trying to force the society to change and alter and try to get away from this clean, calculated war they had going on. That's the actual dilemma. Now, I said this right at the beginning. Do you think they were right to? Do you think it was the right and correct and or correct thing to do to, inf to interfere in this way, to violate the prime directive interference in this way? No judgment. It's probably obvious from my gushing what I think on this matter, and the fact that I just mentioned the actual diplomacy thing. <sighs> See, here's the thing. What's really awesome about this episode is the logic of their position is infallible. We want to have war without the cost to our culture and our civilization. So we're going to go ahead and be at war with our enemies, and we're going to lose people cleanly, but no, no damage, no radiation, no death, no destruction, no loss of infrastructure, no loss of culture. All it is is a quick, clean, quiet war. Now, there is a wonderfully horrific logic about that, but the problem is it's also... It's one of the biggest problems with most logic as applied in real life. It only looks one layer into the data. Because if you look at just the surface level of data, you can come up with logical answers like that. 
It's basic math. It's when you start going multiple layers deep that you're like, well, well, hang on, hang on. That's, that's way more complex than I was ready for. Because here's the thing. There is a natural presumption that everyone makes, uh, most notably Anon 7, Anon 7 and uh, Mia 3, Trillane's mother, about whether or not th this is an acceptable circumstance. And that presumption is war. The idea that war will and indeed must be. They've been at war for five centuries. Of course they think that way. But you see how that is a flaw. They are assuming that as part of the rule set for their logical equations. And in so doing, they are naturally assuming that their method is the only logical approach. Because if they do anything else, they'll, have, they'll still be at war because that's part of the equation. And everything will be screwed. Right? You see the idea here. How peace has basically never even occurred to these people. This is brilliant. And I love how Kirk is called a barbarian because what Kirk is willing to do is fight, whereas what they are willing to do is to calculate. And therefore, he is the barbarian. Logic, right? As a side note, it wouldn't even surprise me if the Vulcans went through something like this at some point in their history. To my knowledge, they did not. It's just an interesting idea. So they call him a barbarian. He flat out says, oh, God, what kind of monster are you? And he has this wonderful speech, which apparently they rewrote like four or five times. And by they, I mean Kuhn, in order to make as good as possible. We're killers. But we're not going to kill today. That's, that's, that's what it takes. Wake up and say, today is not a day in which I'm going to kill. In, in other words, the struggle, the work, the effort is something that matters. And something that should be considered there, rather than simply coldly quietly, constantly killing. I really like this episode, if it's not obvious. But I want to share one last thing here, if you don't mind. I mentioned the Vietnam thing earlier, and the inspiration thereof. I took something different from it. It's never really occurred to me before, but the way they deal with it... Let me phrase this like this. Those in power order... Those order other people to their deaths. Okay. Now you're like, well, okay, that's just life. Hang on. Let me, let me, let me slice this down a little bit more specifically. The elite are so distanced from the cost of war that all they are doing is changing numbers from one column to another. And now you see it. Now you see exactly how messed up this situation could be an analogy for. The, the wealthy, the powerful, the politician, the, the general, whoever it is that doesn't actually understand the literal human sacrifice and the nightmare and the screaming and the pain and the suffering and the cost and the brutality of war, just ordering numbers around on a spreadsheet. This, by the way, is the ultimate reason why I am in favor of Kirk's option here and why if I was the UFP president, now that we have a UFP, I'd back his decision. Because what they are doing here is something that, in my opinion, cannot be tolerated and, frankly, has been tolerated for too long. Even if this reached a situation where they did go to actual war, as Kirk points out, and there's a validity to this, that war, with the tech level they have, would be so devastating as to preclude the possibility of continuing it. At least on the scale that they were. Millions killed every year. Yeah.
Now, I anticipate a lot of you disagreeing with me on that, and that is, as ever, awesome, because I love hearing your guys' thoughts, your comments, your, your feelings, your hatreds, your hopes, your dreams, and your punches. Ugh! I hope to have all of them uh, whenever this episode goes live. And I will see you next time, guys. Chukru.